mankind will not forever remain on Earth, but in the pursuit of light and space, will first timidly emerge from the bounds of the atmosphere and then advance until he has conquered the whole of circumsolar space. Der Interplanetare Podcast. Die Erforschung des Weltraums zum Wohle der gesamten Menschheit. Ihre Gastgeber in England und Deutschland. Matthew Russell und Sven Neuhaus. Oh, Salkovsky spaces at that. You can't beat, can you, a bit of Salkovsky? Yeah, he's the best. He is the best. He might actually be the best. He must have been the furthest ahead of the whole pack, right? He's definitely the front runner, isn't he? From the pack. Rocket equation, space stations. So the reason why I chose that quote, Sven. Oh, by the way, everyone, Sven's joins me on the podcast this week. Hi, Sven. Hello, guys. <laughs> uh, one of the podcasts, and uh, it's Sven hooked up an interview with with our guests today. Who are whom, Sven? From the company Think Orbital, Voyager and Sebastian from the startup Think Orbital, and uh, they have a cool concept for a space station they want to build. That one that is single launch and self-assembling in space and ends up being larger than the ISS. Which is pretty it's pretty awesome, is it? One launch, bigger than the ISS, bishdy bashdy bosh, done. Yes. It's good, isn't it? Sounds too is good it? to be true, actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was looking at it. That, uh, Solkovsky drew a spaceship that doesn't look too dissimilar. Really? It's like a big sphere. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the sort of very first ever ideas for a space station. That's cool. So, you know, yeah. And we were talking about the ISS being a third generation style space station. I wonder if things like assembled in space space stations become sort of generation four space stations. Absolutely. Whether we can call them well, that. Is yeah. the Chinese one also a third generation or? Yeah. So, that, yeah, I think the third generation is it's got multiple um, docking ports. Docking ports. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's modular and you can build it up into a bigger space, just like the. The yeah, the Changong, uh, the ISS, and of course Mir. So I think Mir was the first of the third generation ones. Yeah, but would this be, was would this constitute a fourth generation? I think it would. I think it would. It's definitely a big step, you know, having something that is larger than the interior volume of the f- first stage of a rocket, uh, second stage. I mean, yeah, yeah. And we were discussing where, whereabouts did you find these guys, Sven? Um, I think I saw them on Nexus Aurora. Uh, which you already had on the show. I don't really mm-hmm. know. I don't know which episode it was, but uh, yeah, they were mentioned there and I had a look at the Discord and they also have a nice YouTube uh, clip that, which you should link to. Um, and it's a really cool project. They have some... Yes. They combined a few key ideas and uh, also took advantage of the new upcoming, you know, super heavy launchers to make this possible. Oh, yeah, I mean hopefully. when we when we yeah when we first talk, started talking to them, they were talking about New Glenn, weren't they? But they they seem to by the time we we actually got round to doing this interview, uh, they're talking about um, Starship, which just goes to show how times change yeah, very quickly. I think they put out a paper two years ago, and uh, it was all about New Glenn, and mm-hmm. it would have been twice the interior volume of the ISS, so two thousand cubic meters. And now they're talking about Starship, and it will be four times the interior volume. Wow. Insane. 20 meters yeah. across, you know. 
So, and 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 they've applied, haven't they, for for a NASA funding? Yeah, but so, we'll but we'll link all that in the show notes. But it's um, it's a really it is a really interesting project, isn't it? It's it's that it's that trying to think of how to push humanity just a little bit further into space. Yeah. Also, I think they're applying the uh, the success story of SpaceX because they're doing this mass production, what SpaceX is now doing with the Starlinks and so on. So they, this space station consists of many parts which are all the same. So in theory, or hopefully, they will one day be able to make them really cheap. You know, yeah, that's it's, what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like the Holy Grail, isn't it, a little bit? If you can make stuff modular a little bit where you're repeating the same part over and over again, it does make things quite a bit cheaper doesn't it absolutely and also think their timing is good because iss you know i think it will be more and more of a problem at the end of the century uh, at the end Mm -hmm. of a decade um you know sooner or later they have to abandon it because it's just too old and will be unsafe and then this could be a real alternative you know because the lunar uh the new lunar space station i think it will only be uh you know, inhabited temporarily every now and then. And uh, for research, we need also access to microgravity environment that is constantly, yeah, with yeah. a constant crew on board. Well, and it's just a hell of a heck of a lot safer to be in low Earth orbit than it is out by the moon <laughs> with no Van Allen belts protecting you from the horribleness of Yeah, it's probably also horribleness of a space. lot cheaper, right? <laughs> yeah, I reckon so. Yeah. Lots safer as well. Safer. You're only a few minutes from getting back down to a, a decent hospital, for example. Yeah. Um, instead of us wittering on, shall we just shall we ever just listen to our interview, Sven? Roll it. Let's roll it, eh? Kute! Hatsu! Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you so much, uh, Matt and Sven, for having us. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. We love your podcast, and, and it's uh, a real honor also to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's great being here. The place to start, really, is is can you tell us a little bit about Think Orbital and then move on, I guess, to, to the big project that we wanted to talk about, which was Orb 2. But uh, I'll, I'll let you start. You can you can start right from the beginning about who you are and and how you got together and, and um, how you started this company. So, yeah, we are pretty much a company started by a space enthusiasts. Uh, there is sort of interesting Discord communities that, you know, start and you meet people. Um, and this one I started some time ago for uh, for the Orb2, for an idea that I had uh, two years ago that um, that I published. And um, the goal of Orb2 was uh, to figure out how to scale up human presence in low Earth orbit. Because if we continue with the International Space Station model, that's not really scalable. Like with Starship, you can bring 100 people up there. What do you do with them? Like there is nowhere to accommodate them, nothing to do. So the idea was to figure out, oh, how could we how could we build large volumes where people can actually stay? And that logically went to kind of need for orbital assembly for specific methods of orbital assembly. And um, this led to, you know, reaching out, trying to figure out why cannot this be done? One of the ways how to do it was Discord. And that's where we met with Sebastian. uh, And uh, we started the company in January. So the company is US-based and we are still working on it with a team of people currently working in their free time but now we are going through the pre-seed stage of funding and soon we will be much more a uh, real company, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and if I can jump in, uh, 
uh, I, I feel again honored by having met Boita uh, along our path. Uh, it's a brilliant and excellent human being, and I really, really admire him. And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was I was um, quite grateful that he reached out to me uh, for this amazing project that we're progressing now. And uh, a little bit of my background, and, and it's it's funny. I, was, I had a message from from my mom. If I can tell a little bit about the personal story, I had mm-hmm, a message absolutely uh, a message from my mom uh, two days ago that she had found uh, somewhere in, in her archives my two favorite books when I was a child. And I think it will become apparent why this is so relevant. It's because one of them, um, it's about the story of a flying city, an astronauts. And the entry point, it says, this book is for the children of today that don't yet know that they will be astronauts when they grow older. And the second book is about robots. It's about robotics. And when we have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about the Org 2, in fact, that is that is somewhat the product that we're building now. It's the uh, it's a, a commercial space station that is single launch, multi-purpose, but it's also built by robots. Uh, so it really touched my heart. And we shared it with the team. And you know, maybe the, there's no coincidence in this world, but it seems like a premonition that I had when I was like maybe seven or eight years old. So it was it was rather beautiful. It's really nice. Um, so anyway, moving on, um, I have a, a passion equally like Boita about um, engineering, solving problems, and especially when it comes to space. Um, I do have a background in electromechanics, but then I digress into business and mostly software engineer the last 15 years. Um, but always looking at you know the, a space as the, not just the last frontier for humanity, but also the last frontier for myself. I love to go up in space. Um, and also I, I, I truly believe that space gives humanity that perspective that we need to come together, to come together as one, regardless of your uh, religious inclination or how you look or what country denomination you have, really to realize that we're one tiny blue dot in, in our universe and we need to come together, come together with all living things um, and uh, and start looking after the environment as well. So that's kind of my my drive. Poeta, you're an engineer by background, right? I am, but uh, not aerospace. Um, technically, math and uh, electrical. Okay. <laughs> And what inspired you to come up with the design for the for the Op Two? A uh, couple sleepless nights. Like I was, it was interesting. Like uh, I I knew that there must be a solution how to build a space station that can be assembled in space, but I just couldn't figure out the shape. So a lot of hours of thinking. Uh, so there was no inspiration per se. Uh, the only inspiration would be probably soccer ball. Something. How can you build up a sphere from uh, from shapes that are identical? And that happened to nicely fit and lay in a payload fairing of a rocket. So this was the right solution. Uh, the beauty of this is that this kind of the orb two, that's just the starting point, right? You can, there is nothing limiting you adding more segments, building bigger spheres uh, or, or different shapes, even once you master the assembly method. So similar to Sebastian, like uh, I, I read so many Joe Verne books when I was when I was a kid, and then went straight into Star Trek's Next Generation and Stargaze, and you know I've been indoctrinated. And I really think that like there is something that drives me, and probably a lot of other people. It's just let's let's get out, let's have this science fiction future that 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 should be awesome. Hopefully it is. And without without people in low Earth orbit, this we cannot start much. I don't think we can start Mars colonization without having decent infrastructure in orbit. Uh, or, or moon colonization or asteroid mining. So this is kind of a starting point, the infrastructure where it can all begin. So was there, I, I mean, you're, you've, you've mentioned 
elements of the design, but people listening won't 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 be able to kind of get a, a full grasp of it. So so there's a couple of questions really. Is what <laughs> what's the enabling technology that suddenly allowed something like this to be possible? And actually, yeah, describe it in detail in terms of. Yeah, describe actually what Orb 2 is in detail and and why suddenly this may be even feasible to do. Yeah, I feel bad for taking all the questions, uh, but yeah, let me spend <laughs> two, two minutes yeah. on details. So so imagine that you have a kind of a flat-packed uh, segments that are hexagons and pentagons laid in the payload fairing of the rocket in a horizontal way. And those segments are later in orbit uh, put into a spherical shape because uh, sphere is the best pressure vessel and also best shape for a space station for many reasons. Um, but so you need to somehow pick them up, put them in place, and make it uh, hold the pressure and make it airtight. And that's a that's a job of kind of two enabling key technologies which were already working in space 20 years ago. It's just kind of repurposing them. And one is uh, robotic arms, so similar to the Canada arm. It, Canada arm is probably much more complex than this arm would have to be. And then there is a welding method for actually uh, welding the pressure vessel to hold to hold all the forces. So for that, we uh, there is a technology called electron beam welding, which has been developed in 1960s, even tested in space by uh, Soviet Union and Russia. Um, and it's like the best welding method that humanity has. It's used in rare cases. For instance, welding the F-14 jet fighter's wings onto its fuselage. Um, it has one big problem. That's why it's not used everywhere, and it, that it requires high vacuum to operate in, which makes it very expensive on Earth, but perfect for orbit. So you combine these two technologies. You have a robotic arm that can move things around, and then you put a, uh, a welder on it, and suddenly you have the capability to, to build up pressure vessels and building large volumes that are empty, but live up like safe from the beginning. And that's where you start. I think if I can complement, um, just to visualize, so imagine you have the service module and with all the orb to this sort of hexagons and pentagons stacked on top, like if it was IKEA flatpack, I think IKEA is probably well known across the, uh, the listeners yeah. of the podcast. And this is put inside the rocket, uh, which could be New Glenn or it could be Starship that will deter determine the size. Then it gets sent out into orbit, and this robotic arm detaches. So the the, uh, the photovoltaic panels and the radiators expand, and then the the robotic arm starts doing its work, and it picks up one of the segments and then puts it into the right place. The segment latches onto either the service module or or other segments, and you have not only the stability but also the temporary stability or, or, the, or the, the allotment, but also power and data. And then the robotic arm keeps walking all around the, the sphere, building the sphere from outside with the hexagons and then from within inside the pentagons. And once that soccer ball or that football, um, depending on which continent or country you, you, you appreciate your football or soccer, it's completed, then the robotic arm goes and picks up the electron beam welding gun and goes through every single seam of that soccer ball, of the hexagons and the pentagons, and, and welds it together. And at that point, you already have your commercial space station um, al that allows then for the subsequent stages of commissioning to take place. Maybe, Wojta, if you want to explain those those steps. Yeah, so we, we build up a huge volume, and we are talking four times the volume of the ISS with a single launch of Starship, like massive. But it's except the service module, it's mostly empty. So at some point, you need a crew, actually a human crew, that can go there. Uh, this time, they don't need their space 
bulky EVA spacesuits or maybe not even pressure suits. And they can start building the basic elements of the life support so they can live there and pretty much construct the, the interior of the space station uh, to whatever the customer would potentially want. So this this is a little bit of a, it's more difficult than launching already everything equipped uh, in the cylindrical modules as it's done today, but also gives you additional flexibility to, to build up if you need large uninterrupted volumes, uh, or even you know, if you are a fan of Ender's Game, you could end up with some ZRG arena if someone pays for it. Yeah, that's funny. That's what I thought about also. Yes. But I think also one of the enabling technologies is not just the welding and um, what was the other one? The other robotic arm, the very cool one, but also the cheap, super large, uh, heavy launchers, right? Absolutely. Without that, this would not be possible. Um, it's it's funny because when I started thinking about this idea, that was three years ago, New Glenn seemed to be much more realistic and on-time option. So the first designs were for New Glenn. Uh, how the things have changed compared to Starship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, okay. Yeah. It, so you have this enormous interior space mm -hmm. because you've got this sphere is there a, is there a disadvantage or an advantage to having that kind of large interior space that doesn't have close-in walls that you can use or is that just about fitting it out I'll, i think i'll take that one so um the use cases that we're working towards um except except one um they are, uh, the outcome would be that it's all fully fitted out. We wouldn't be handing over to our customers a huge empty uh, volume, unless, of course, they're looking for it. Um, the two use cases, one of them, it's um, a private space hotel, or we see it more analogous, in fact, as a cruise ship than a hotel. And this will be really the sort of the leisure type of orb too. And I love to imagine the customer journey of you know, the preparation, it's not intensive as you would have for for a, an astronaut itself, similar to what we see perhaps for inspiration for, just to make sure that they're you know they're healthy enough and they will be able to enjoy their experience going up in a in a in a launch vehicle and really getting there and having the full immersion into space, having different sections where you can actually perhaps you know do some relaxation and looking out into the universe, but also areas where you can do some more active um, uh, events such as art or, or other activities that we have in mind as well with Boita. That's one of them. Um, and, and I think it's beautiful. We want to go up there. We probably want to operate it ourselves as well. And the, the second one is a little bit more business-to-business -business activity. It could be a, a research lab, which is what we have done recently for a design for the NASA CLD. But it, it also could be other activities, such as, you know, now we're looking a little bit more further down the road, but supporting some sort of, um, you know, rare earth mineral, or rare, rare earth materials processing or mining operations. Um, but I don't know how much you want to go in detail, but perhaps Boita, you could complement as well. Um, yeah, I think the, the the short answer to this would be most of these cases have partition space. You can imagine some kind of foldable or inflatable partitions that would allow you to have much more normal experience in your space stations, unless you want something else. Like uh, it could be possible to, uh, similar to Skylab, to to run around and and be stuck to the outside, have some running track there. That could be fun. Um, it's it's all up to what what would people want. What we are really doing is uh, building up the. Think of it as a real estate. Like you build a warehouse, but how you build the plumbing? But what do people do there? That's that's up to the customer. So the, looking at the ISS versus a sphere, this seems to be maybe 
uh, have more drag, right? Do you have to raise orbit more often, or do you would you just put it higher up where there's less remaining air in the vacuum of space? You think that ISS has less drag than than orbit? Yeah, maybe because it's like horizontal. The the, the cross section of ISS is huge. Uh, yeah, but it's not it's flying. It's not flying sideways, is it? Well, unless, the, unless the Russians, unless the Russians are landing there, <laughs> oh, yes, only oh. only part time. <laughs> I think the sphere is a great shape, uh, including the the lower cross sections for the volume. Uh, generally, like the, the sphere, you know, is this. If you want some light pressure vessel, the, the the forces are uniform. So you want a sphere. If you if you want small cross section for a given volume, to have mi minimize the risk of micrometeorites and orbital debris, uh, sphere is the best, like lowest surface per volume. Again, uh, best shape. ISS. Uh, I did the math on the drag, uh, and definitely seemed much lower than ISS because of the solar panels and radiators of the ISS and everything. Is, the cross section is pretty large. Yeah, they are pretty huge. Yeah. And, and imagine something, and, and Wojta can please compliment as well. So for the for to have a, a, a match or a comparison, ISS would have to be at least four times bigger. So imagine the yeah. drag and the cross section of a four times larger ISS versus the orb two. And, and we love the ISS. It's not that we want to put the ISS down, but you know we're building a, a sort of a generation forward of uh, commercial space station. Yeah, so just to get the numbers, so you said it's four times the volume of the ISS interior, so it's 4,000 cubic meters, I think. That's correct. What's the uh, diameter then of the sphere? Uh, 20 meters. 20 meters. Oh. And then you have service module with additional space. Yeah. Uh, re regarding or orbit keeping, I think if ISS was built today, it would have, sorry, it would have ion engines. Uh, instead of the way it's uh, the orbit keeping is done today. Uh, so similar to what the, the was, was the name for it, the LOBG or the, yeah, anyway, it has, it has ion thrusters as well. No, 20 meters oh, is insane. Here. Totally insane. <laughs> it, is, is this, I mean, obviously this, this, this building in space has been thought of for a long time, but no one's really ever done it have they other you know it, it other than sort of attaching modules together uh, the actual con like proper construction in space is is really difficult so is there <laughs> well probably an under, under understatement there as well so it have you got a timeline about uh, the, the sort of maybe the things that you could send up to kind of do proof of concept or or do you just go straight for a orb to <laughs> Uh, if you have half a billion half a billion dollars, then we can go straight for it. Uh, but uh, no, no, we have a timeline for kind of uh, subscale demonstrator missions and prototypes increasing in complexity and cost uh, over time. So our goal would be to within within two to three years to launch a subscale demonstrator that would pretty much increase the readiness level of of the novel technologies that we are bringing, proving that it can work on a small scale before we start um, going for the full scale. So we have a plan, um, and yeah, when we—that's another thing. Like we were one of the companies that applied for the NASA CLD, and uh, when we were going through the kind of readiness level of the individual components, it was clear that uh, what what is novel about us needs increased readiness level. And how do you do it? You build it and launch into space, even on a subscale. Mm. Yeah, this this welding you mentioned um, that the Russians did was it also uh, robotic or 
did they have some humans doing it? Because I so, think there's also some radiation, right? Uh, right. Uh, I guess you have very detailed uh, knowledge of this. So yeah, the, the Russians did both actually. They they had like some prepared boxes that did like automated welding in orbit, but it was just pure experimental. And then they had uh, welding guns, which the astronauts you know tested in, on their EVAs. But those those have to be really low powered. Like you cannot weld more than a few millimeters of aluminum with that. Uh, and those have to be low power because of the X-rays that the uh, loading is emitting. So for the safety of the astronauts. Okay, cool. If I can comment, not necessarily on this, for for also the the audience, when we talk about CLD, and we have to be so careful. Sometimes we talk about in acronyms and and more and more. Um, this is the um, NASA's program or for commercial Leo destination. Um, in a way, it's um, NASA's um, approach at having some form of habitable space in space once the International Space Station is decommissioned. Originally, it was due for 2024, but now they are likely to push it back to 2028, maybe 2030. And uh, and without going to too much detail, basically NASA, from what I understand, from what we understand, they want to move slightly more to a public-private partnership, similar to what they have done successfully with, with SpaceX, um, where they become a customer of many, and they don't have to um, foot the bill um, like they do now. I think it's about $3 billion a year to keep the ISS uh, running. If you're building something this huge, is there, you know, is there is there an actual market for it in terms of the ISS seems to, in some ways, have struggled to justify its insanely expensive existence. So sticking up something four times bigger <laughs> might seem like a little bit mad. <laughs> I think I can, I can take that one to start with. So... Um, we understand the engineering challenges um, to, to some extent that were faced in building the ISS, uh, and also the funding challenges that they went through. Um, and and you know that was at the time where you know we had the shuttle, which is I love the shuttle uh, personally, but there were limitations in terms of the upkeep of itself of the shuttle. Now we're a slightly different paradigm, and I'm not uh, the one that um, created this uh, thought, but. We've been talking to people who have been in the industry for much longer, and they see some correlation, perhaps, of the time when the the, in, the internet started to kick out. You know, the late late nineties um, towards early two thousands when it became more broader access, and we see similar approach to what's happening now with Starship, with many of these very successful companies that are, uh, in a way, moving the bottleneck from launch, which historically has been quite costly, quite dangerous, to something that is more proven, more systematic. I mean, if we have Starship uh, online, we're, you know, there, there are talks about bringing the, the, the kilo of going up into space to, what, $500 or, or less? I think um, Boyda can, can complement that. I think I heard someone telling me recently that currently it's about, the estimate would be around $250 a kilo. Um, so if that happens, and we have a lot more broader access, you know, you're sort of widening the pipe, to be able to access the space, what do we do? It's like having loads of planes, loads of people that want to travel, but you don't have a hotel, you don't have anywhere where, where people can stay or do their businesses. And, and that's where we we want to come in. Yeah. So my, cool. take, my take on this, Matt, is that, first of all, we might be slightly mad, uh, but we would be much yeah. madder if we, <laughs> if, we did, if we did this 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, this would make no sense, the cost of this like first of all, you couldn't build it this big. The, the main driver for using such a space station would be the launch cost. Um, so it would make no sense. But similar to Starship, Starship doesn't have any business use case now. But once you enable it, uh, then uh, 
the market can open, you can create a lot of new use cases. And for us, the main driver is the space tourism, which is currently still in very high demand. I mean, there are people in the past who paid 20 to $70 million uh, to stay two weeks on the ISS. And there is a line of people who would like to go, who would like to pay, but couldn't because all the seats were bought by NASA and there was no there was no way of to put somebody there. Now imagine if this opens and the cost goes down tenfold. Yeah, talking about cost, um, so you think the actual space station will be less than the launch cost? Or No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay, but uh, do you have any figures about the cost? I think it will be much cheaper than the ISS, right? Well, we we have a target. So we did a bottom-up approach. I'm not sure how much, Boyda, you feel comfortable in sure, but we did a bottom-up approach in how much it would cost us to get to market. Um, and that is roughly sitting around 600 million. Certainly be, our target would be to be below a billion. And when we say to reach market is, is to go through the full sort of hardware iterations of our subscale demonstrators version one to four, you know, try and test the technology all, way, all the way to a full-scale demonstrator, which is not human-rated, to a human-rated one, to then once we're fully satisfied, mission assurance and safety is paramount for us. That will be when we reach the market, when we have a full-scale uh, production line and, and we're churning the orb tools out uh, at the other end. Because one of the things also has been your spot on, so, you know, what is the enabling technology? So when, and, and we talked about the robotic arm, we talked about e-welding and, and, and other things, but one of the key things is to bring the cost down. To what are the key cost drivers? How can we build this en masse uh, to be able to bring the cost down? And, and one of the targets that we have for um, a fully commissioned orb tool without interior and without including launch is 220 million. And uh, and what we're aiming for, once it's fully commissioned, the leisure type of Orb 2 is to bring the cost down per ticket for uh, 10 days below half a million dollars per person. Again, we may be looking back at this podcast in 10 years and think Sebastian and Boyd are totally mad and they're super mad, they never achieved that. Or we may be looking back and saying, actually, that it was even higher than, than what they have achieved so far. So this is why we have a, a slightly agile, iterative approach uh, and a discovery mode when we go through the uh, development of the technologies. Oita? It's, it's interesting because uh, who, depending who you talk to, they think that this can be built, but is there a business use case? And some investors are like, guys, if you build this, you will, you'll be gods. And I have no doubts that it will make money. So there might be a mar market, there might be different kind of perception of a market. Um, but in our case, uh, the space hotel is our kind of primary use case that we could uh, finance our company with, no matter whether there is a market or not, like for business to business. Yeah, so what, one of your sort of bringing down the costs is to, is to actually mass produce Orb 2. So it won't be like the International Space Station where there's just one of them. You'll, you'll have a fleet of these things in, in, in orbit. So roughly sort of, <laughs> what are the numbers? What are we talking <laughs> Well, we discussed, I'll take it and then you can pass it over to you, but we discussed that in the first year of operations, we're unlikely to be able to build more than three of these. And it will, all, it will be market-driven, right? We're not going to be sort of creating them and building them and commissioning them unless there is a need. Uh, but we surely want to start, we, we want to start thinking about what uh, manufacturing throughput we need uh, for the first year. So we also build the manufacturing facilities around it, the materials, the ecosystem that we have, et cetera. Um, so that's that's more or less in a nutshell, but Boyda? Yeah, I think that's one of the beauties of, of kind of building the sphere using the soccer ball kind of analogy. 
uh, is because even for one, you need 20 identical hexagons that are identical and 12 pentagons. So you need to set up some kind of production line that allows you to make those in large numbers. And once you have that, you can just start kind of checking them um, in large numbers and uh, see if there's custom- enough customers who are interested in it. Yeah, I suppose you can even build spare parts, can't you, that are just not that expensive in terms of their in terms of their construction these these each of the panels are they a bit like the the system that they use on the iss to to protect them from micrometeorites and stuff and debris and stuff yeah we are we are not reinventing the wheel uh, the current designs have pretty much the, the the exact strongest configuration that is on iss which is designed to protect kind of the most exposed and critical parts um, and similar to how uh, kind of the ULA rockets are made or um, you have the panels themselves are bent and machined there's no- nothing new about it so how thick is how thick are they all in all so the pressure vessels we want to have uh, let's say four times the margin so to hold four atmospheres and for that they will be roughly 4.8 millimeters thick with additional thickness for the stiffness. Okay, and uh, how much power do you <laughs> will you have uh, in your initial design, like electrical power? So the, the current designs uh, kind of rely on the same uh, saw arrays that you saw recently shipped to ISS, uh, the, the, the advanced ROSA arrays. Uh, so for us, we have to see what's, what what the demand is actually for the customers and for all the systems, but we currently rely on roughly 50 kilowatts and batteries. But uh, those are the definite details to be changed. Now, what, what one thing that came up with uh, someone that worked at JPL on one of the podcasts recently <laughs> was saying that one of the most sort of hardest, most expensive things that they had was was to control the temperature of any mission was like the, the sort of <laughs> the cryo stuff and all uh, all that is, is, yeah, you know, obviously this thing's going around in space, gets into direct sunlight, gets into shadow. So how does that affect a sphere like that that's made up of panels? So I'll give you a brief answer to that. Uh, this is one of the holes that we know that we have in our design. This requires some ex- expensive modeling and, and hardware that currently we need funding for. Uh, but definitely, again, given the fact that you get the sphere has a smaller surface area compared to the uh, to the volume, I think it's it's manageable. And the sphere can kind of expand and contract in, in a uniform way. So it shouldn't create any pressure kind of stress points. So kind of just just winging it i would say it's going to be an issue but solvable one uh, but we don't we don't have details i mean what, one of the things not so much about thermal but it's also interesting in terms of distribution of things if i may matt um it's also the airflow inside the orb too and any layout i mean unless it's completely open but any layout that we're thinking about we want to make sure that there is you know there is a sort of fresh air going through the orb too and that's that seems sometimes like um, like an easy channel, but you know we, we have to make sure. But one of the things we we've been talking to and getting information with regard to experiences that happen in the ISS, and especially when people are sleeping, perhaps in sort of a little dorm, you need to make sure that they they keep getting oxygen, they keep getting fresh air, that the uh, the carpal capturing is operating, etc. So those are the things that are the challenges that we're already thinking about, and uh, we had the pleasure to to talk to you know companies that have been. 35 years operating in every single mission from NASA and, and, and they have been open to share their challenges 
and uh, we're very grateful to them as well. And these are the things that we we look forward to. I mean, we love we love solving engineering problems. I said it before, so we really want to get a hands you know, into the problem and, and, and find the solutions. And we'll hopefully come back to you with uh, some updates down the road and tell you, oh, you remember when Matt, you asked us about this? This is how we cracked it, you know? You mentioned that thermals are a challenge. What what other challenges do you have? Aside from funding, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's what I was there to say. That's always the biggest challenge. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> I'll, I'll just start and I'll pass it over to Void as he's, he's our engineer mastermind. So the way we try to think about um, the innovation that we're progressing with now, and, and we've not reinvented this, we're not reinventing the wheel, but it's sort of this Venn diagram. So first of all, is it feasible? So technologically, can we make this happen? And and we have challenges. I mean, this NASA commercial Leo destination submission that we've done allow us to dive deeper um, into our technology readiness levels, and Boita mentioned that. Then the second one, is there a market? And so far we have interest, we have letters of intent without going into too much details. And the third one, is it profitable? And will we get the funding to get there? And out of the three ones, like you pointed out, Spen, I think it's not new for a startup also operating in space and hardware. That is the biggest challenge we have. And we're very grateful that uh, we have been approached. Without, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we've been approached by uh, a lead investor and a number of other investors even before we started actively going out. And, and we're progressing our pre-seed round at the moment, which should be closing about two, three weeks. Um, but it will be a challenge. It will be a challenge, I think, in terms of funding all the way. I'll stop here. I know the audience probably don't want to spend too much time on that, so I'll go back to Void in terms of the technologies. No, I'll be. I might be a little bit boring too, because uh, from from my engineering side, I I feel like I know enough to know what I don't know. But uh, soon we'll get funded. We'll start building the company, and building building the company might be even harder than building the product itself. And to me, like one of the challenges that we'll be facing is creating the right culture, the the right processes, uh, finding the right people, and and that's difficult. So. To me, that might be the, the biggest challenge that will decide the, the fate of the company. Like, can we do this right? Can we somehow not replicate, but uh, get similar outputs and productivity like SpaceX gets from, from their employees? Mm -hmm. So that to me is a challenge. Like, can we do this? And I think we can, yeah. but on the future will tell. Yeah, I mean, the, the searching for employees, like you said, is one of the sort of, I know is just incredibly difficult to sort of find people that, that aren't being sucked up by other companies that doing similar things or do, do you look at other other sort of branches of industry that aren't anything to do with space like are you going to hire someone from say a, a football manufacturer <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a great question I, I, and i'll start so we're not thought about it actually and we'll, if it's okay with you we'll probably think about that as well. i think it would make total sense um, but for sure, something that we have found is that um, there, and, and that's changing, right? But there's a lot of focus on aerospace engineering. You know, you need to be an aerospace engineer to be operating in aerospace. And I think the fundamentals of that is true. However, when we start, when we're at the flex point now where we're in a nascent industry, which is going to grow, I mean, the projections are this going to grow, we will need all sorts of different type of expertise. So for example, we were talking about um, going into leisure, going into tourism. So we have someone in the team that has an expertise and that we want to know not only the capabilities, we don't just want to have the capabilities that are relevant to the product we're developing, we want to have the capabilities relevant to the industry. So when it comes to leisure, tourism, or maybe when it comes to research and development, and so on and so forth. And even within our team, for example, we have 
capabilities around architecture as well. Um, so, um, and, and it's, it's true that the hiring process is difficult. So far, we have a team of collaborators that are onboarded as consultants within the company, and it's been fantastic. We had around 100 calls, um, discovery calls across different areas and fields. And during that process, we had people who wanted to join, and some people, we actually took them on the team. Uh, and, the, and that range of expertise makes, I think, Think Orbital so special. From all walks of life, different creeds, different cultures, different interests. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, Voita, if you wanted to compliment. I want to use this as a shameless plug because uh, we will be putting our headquarters with the high, high probability to Pasadena, to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So if there are any people bored at Caltech or JPL who want to try some <laughs> ambitious project, please, please reach out to me. Oh man, yeah. I mean, if, if you build a concert venue up in space, I'll, I'll help you with that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Need I'm good over. acoustics. Just, just, just invite me. Station, yeah. Right? yeah, you need. Yeah, yeah. If you need an acoustician, I'm your man. Why, why not have the first podcast? Is there a podcast in space or maybe they have done it? But no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they have done an actual podcast. Not a weekly one, anyway. Well, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you build me a little podcasting studio. Yeah. Well, you know, when we have calls, I know it's not it's not the same. But the last question we normally ask, especially for people who want to be collaborators, do you want to go up in space? And I think maybe the answer is clear for you, Matt and Sven, I, I guess. Would you like to go up in space? If you felt oh, safe enough, that. would you come to the orbit? Even if it was unsafe, I'm there. <laughs> I am the same. I am the same. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Willing to, I'm willing to take big risk. Yeah, take, take me first. <laughs> you would have to rename the podcast to Extraterrestrial Podcast, though. So uh, that would oh, be yeah, yeah, true. That's good. That's still interplanetary. Yeah, it was, well, yeah, if we can get one of these over in orbit around Mars, then we'll be all right. Well, we're, we're thinking about it. It's not going to be Gen 1, but we're thinking about it. <laughs> so uh, you handed in this uh, proposal for NASA. Did you did they already get back to you with feedback? Not yet. We handed it over on the 26th of August, and um, it was a very interesting journey. I'm not going to bore the audience or yourselves about it. Um, and we're we're waiting to hear. I mean, there was uh, some news coming out recently that they may want to have closure towards the end of this year. The official timelines, at least or official, the estimated timelines that were released in the proposal stage is that they will be looking at signing, uh, I think it was a maximum of four Space Act agreements within Q1 2022. And that would run all the way for four to five years. And then that would be phase one. And then from phase one, they will decide who will move into phase two, which will be the actual uh, manufacturing and commissioning of the commercial space station. But it's super exciting, I have to say. Really, really exciting times to be alive if you're into space. Wow. It was such a good experience. Like if you want to figure out, like blend your team and figure out who is good at what, give them something difficult to do. And like writing 60 page proposal uh, based on very specific criteria from NASA was one of those difficult things. Um, but yeah, now there is a NASA, I think like not official, but blackout period where they will not say anything. And mm -hmm. if, if we succeed in one way or another, they will get back to us, but back to us, but I don't expect it anytime soon. I mean, and we know we're punching above our weight. Absolutely. I mean, if you were to have a look, there were 55 interested parties, um, including, you know, companies that we really admire, like SpaceX, Blue Origin, many, many others um, that express at least interest. And um, at least from the news outlet recently, um, the, the, um, they were saying that there were a dozen of companies that actually submitted an application. So uh, we're technically one of 12 um, applicants. Well, definitely good luck. 
because yeah, I mean, it'd be absolutely uh, incredible to have something. Because I mean, it's 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 obviously clearly massively ambitious. I mean, I, I'm looking at pictures of it, and I, and the the one question I have is, do you how many airlocks does this thing have, or is it, <laughs> it, is it just like because you know, can you get get to it from various sides, and can you can you actually join them up as well, and is there scope to actually have a bigger one than a 20 meter diameter or smaller ones even, you know, can you build sort of multiple sizes? I think that's, that's a great question because let's say that you mastered assembly technology, you know what you're doing, you can build pressure vessels in space. Is it better to connect multiple spheres or is it better to build one large one? And why not, if you have the technology mastered, why not build some uh, 30 meter diameter O'Neill cylinder and with simulate some moon gravity without making people sick? So once we get there, there might be many interesting ways how, how to proceed further. Um, I don't know which one is the best yet. We'll see. And, and if I can complement what Boyd is saying, there is the technology drive and the, the, the passion, as we mentioned earlier, of the engineering side um, that, that we live and breathe every day, I think, Orbital. But ultimately, it will be market-driven, product-driven, customer-driven. So as Boyd was saying, if we, you know, once we master this, um, this sort of kernel of our, of our core technology, if there is a need to have something bigger, if there is a need to have something smaller, those will be um, some of the drivers, depending, obviously, if there is enough demand. And, and the demand is, uh, you know, it can help us with regards to the development side of things. Uh, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, that's a good, uh, good thought. Uh, can you use maybe the same technology that is in orbit assembly and welding to do something other than a space station, maybe a large telescope also? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're focusing on the uh, on the space station now because I would love to go up in space. I'd love, I would love to go to our lesser base space cruise ship you know that that's one of my drivers um but but it also it's it's also inspirational because you know there's a history behind humanity wanted to go out in space we mentioned earlier that we're now broadening up the uh, the, the existing or legacy bottleneck of getting access to space so we want to be the real state that provides that space for humanity to take that next step um so yeah and then once the technology is mastered then it will depend on the needs uh, that we have in terms of the use cases and the products uh, that we will be delivering. The other, the other design feature that I thought was, you know, would be nice is some windows. Oh yes, is that is yes. <laughs> so like that sort of cupola thing? How 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 would you do that with 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 a with a spherical object? So I don't see a problem in that. Um, currently, you can use like aluminium uh, oxynitride. Uh, which is kind of a bulletproof glass, or even even your regular acrylic to curve it slightly into like contact lens shape glass. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's the sphere, so kind of the pressure equalizes everywhere a little bit. Uh, it's a good shape for it. And uh, kind of we have a render on on our YouTube channel uh, that shows different windows, and those are roughly the same size as the. Um, as the new Shepherd's windows, which go to space, and they are uh, circular shapes, so I don't think that will be more difficult than what New Shepherd is doing. And ultimately, we will be trying to push for a bigger window, bigger experience. We're also discussing the possibility of having some, some sort of LED technology that would help with the immersion into space when you're inside the Orb too, even though the windows will be big. So there's a lot of things that we're currently in the process within our dis uh, customer discovery exercise. 
Yeah, so I mean, I mean, just back to that quickly about the uh, back to that question about building space telescopes. Presumably, if you're able to prove out all these novel technologies, you'll you'll have this sort of big long list of uh, intellectual property and, and 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 you know techniques for doing stuff. So, you, is that is that where a lot of the value of your company may actually come from? I think absolutely. Um... Also, we are not the only, only one regarding telescopes or even radio telescopes. Uh, I don't know if you or the, the listeners are familiar with the SPIDER uh, mission that's trying to assemble a radio telescope in space with a robotic arm. Uh, that's not ours, of course. I believe that's uh, Maxar or Redwire. Uh, but assembly in space, I think, is the future technology. And as, as exactly as you said, like the, the person who masters it uh, might be the, the construction company in space to call. Hey, and what's uh, the ISS is how, how old are 30 years or so? And they're talking about taking out of service. How long do you think your Orb 2 can last? Is, orbit, is it going to turn into orbital debris one day and kill people on the ground when it comes crashing down? <laughs> so, <laughs> so why? Responsible why citizen. <laughs> I don't know the exact technical reasons why the ISS is uh, kind of failing, but I would assume it's more the moving parts than than the pressure vessels or the structure itself. Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Structures, yeah, I don't know. Oh. Thermal stress must be pretty high. If you're in the shadow, it's really cold. In the sun, it's super hot. I think yeah. in in general, and I'm talking. I mean, I have many years ago studied electromechanics. Um, but mostly I've been on the um, on the software engineering side for at least a decade and a half or two decades. And the reality is as technology advances, um, there is either the, the actual deterioration of you know the physical products, the atom products, uh, for which require higher upkeep, higher maintenance. And we know the ISS has been operational, fully occupied for two, de two decades now, I think. Um, so I think there must be some deterioration in the materials as well. But on the other hand, then um, it's the obsolescence of the technology and the cost of keeping that obsolescence as opposed to saying, you know what, we'll scrap it and we're going to use novel technologies that are a lot easier and a lot more cost effective to maintain uh, than the, what we have up there. So it, I, my gut feeling is that it's probably a combination of both, if it makes sense. And, and it's generally very often it's like get out of uh, free, get out of jail card. It's like, oh, technology developed, we can do better. In some cases, like the, the manufacturing of the pressure vessels themselves, the technology didn't move too much. But in other cases, like solar arrays or, or life support systems, uh, they are so much better than they were uh, 30 years ago when ISS started. And ISS design is also based on older designs, so it's even more than that. So, so a lot of, lot of the solutions can just be solved by current somewhat of the shelf propositions like iron drives, life support systems. They are just much better than they used to be. So this, this definitely helps us. Um, we, are, we are planning to replicate some of the aspects of ISS, but where we can get improvements, we absolutely will. I love this analogy of standing in the, in the shoulders of giants. And I think it's very applicable to aerospace. I mean, we wouldn't be anywhere where we are now if it wasn't because of all that has been done before and, and i think that's key and, and we love what you know what the likes of action space are doing now or even orbit fab you know just to really open up that possibility to to be able to commercialize and, and broader access to space 
I'll, I'll, I'll get a kicking from Rob if if I don't mention like the, the, the whole idea of, yes, in terms of architectural design and things like that, it seems that's the one thing that's kind of been missing from a lot of space station design in terms of when you look at the beautiful drawings that some of the early Russian space station designs they actually had an architect but they don't seem to have done the same thing with the iss or 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 skylab or any or anything really is 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 that something that you could address could you could you actually you know is that something that that you would like to address and and actually have a nice place to stay rather than a mess i think (laughs) as i would i think i'll take that one but absolutely absolutely i want to go up there I want to go up there. I want to be able to enjoy it. And this is a reason why um, very early on with Boita, we decided we wanted to have an architecture capabilities. And we have our director of architecture, Giuseppe. He's absolutely amazing. He's already won awards uh, with regards to some of the space architecture designs that he has done. And um, I think we're going to blow your mind, Matt, and a few more people away on, on how beautifully designed uh, it will be inside. And, and again, this is not to detriment or to lower the, the, the ISS. I think ISS was built for a purpose. And for that purpose, it survived. It's like, a, you know, you're not going to go and have your holidays or rest in a lab, isn't it? In a lab, you go and do your research. And the same for the Orb 2 for leisure. Um, again, we'd love to be able to share with you some of the designs or early drawings on the design, the architecture designs we have so far. Um, they're really, really beautiful. And I look forward to it. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, have you heard anything from from Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Couldn't see. He, I think he's busy. <laughs> I, I hope it's not email that says "cool idea." I'm gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he has enough on his plate already. So, yes. no, hopefully, I'm... he will just uh, transport it up up there for you guys. No, I. I... At a personal level, I think what he's doing is fantastic, right? Trying to address, um, you know, the issues we have here on Earth directly through the work with Tesla and Solar City, and uh, and uh, you know, making making humanity space-faring civilization, having the vision to go to Mars, no matter how challenging it is. I mean, he makes he makes things happen, and I think that's just fascinating. It's one of those people that we're going to look back like we did for Tesla and Edison, et cetera. It's just a, a civilization changer. And obviously all the team that he has around him, isn't it? He could have not done it by himself. I mean, we, we owe him a lot because without the Starship, we might not have a company because suddenly our proposition makes total sense because of it. No, absolutely. And as a result, do you think that this is going to be a busy space, that, that there'll be other other startups, other companies that will have other novel space station designs and therefore you might sort of, you know, you might be the Ford and there might be the Chrysler somewhere else and there might be the, you know, the... You know, lots of uh, the Toyota, whatever, and and so you'll be in a in a busy space, not necessarily you know trying to win out, but just a space where there's room for lots of competition. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> uh, one one interesting thing crossed my mind, like during the NASA COD briefings, uh, one of the people from NASA said, like, it's clear to me that from all the propositions that none of the future space station will not look like ISS. So you have different companies, Sierra Nevada, continuing with the inflatables. Like people realize that there is a future, and that the current solution that ISS is is not the not the best one for the future. So, uh, Sebastian, if you want to, 
Yeah, no, and, and with this also something that we've been discussing with Boyd, in a way, uh, competition helps advance um, also better access because it reduces cost. And uh, we cherish the work of well, Action Space and, and many others that are working in this field. And in a way, we're looking for a niche market. We're not looking for direct competition. Certainly, it would be foolish for us to do it at this stage. And we're looking to be able to complement each other and to support, in fact, the work of Action Space or Orbit Fab or any other companies. Um, and, and I think one of the thoughts that I have from, from the likes of, of Peter Thiel is that, I don't know if you heard about, um, you know, he says competition is for losers, right? Um, and, you know, what we want to do is to, <laughs> I, I, love, I love this guy, I, equally Elon Musk as well. So he talks about creating and capturing value that lasts, or lasting value. And to some extent also to build a monopoly, but build a monopoly in the niche that we want to operate, which is to have this sort of real estate infrastructure in space. Obviously, with honor and dignity, um, uh, but at the same time, with a with a sharp focus of what we're trying to do here at Think Orbital, which is to master that technology and really help humanity access and, and live in space. Yeah. So maybe that might be. Uh, so our mission is to accelerate the colonization of the Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Or colonization might be a bad word, but Co that's our mission. Yes. Co commercialization is better. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, with that in mind, like competition, if if they have, if if we spur the competition, if we show that this is possible, um, and there will be more companies, even big companies, investing in this space, I would take it as a win. Of course, it would be great to outcompete them, uh, and we will do our best to do so. But again, it's it's the dream, right? It's it's the mission, and we just want him in space, and we want to help it. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to. We're going to have to. Uh, we've almost taken an hour oh, of your wow. time, so and I want. I'd, and I want. I want to get a couple of quick, quick fire questions to you. And that is, when do you think? When do you think you'll see? What year do you think you'll see an orb two constructed and and occupied in low Earth orbit? I'll take that first, waiter. So our initial roadmap was um, second half of 2028. We know that's a, we know that is incredibly ambitious. We know it. I can see it in your face. I know if the audience can <laughs> see it or not. Um, but this is what we're aiming for. The interesting thing is that um, the prospective customers we have and also the uh, the investors that are interested, they would like us to get to market much faster. In fact, they're looking at under five, even preferably under four years. Uh, and that's where the challenge lies. And that's where we were talking about the funding element, right? We already have a beautiful ecosystem of companies that could help us accelerate that. Um, but even 2028 is challenging, yes. I don't know if Boita, you wanted to, to complement. Yeah, I, I think what you mentioned, Matthew, uh, is uh, there might be a time difference between first orb twin orbit and first orb two that's commercial with people on board. Uh, so we might have few prototypes, few refinements uh, before we can like safely say this is this is everything is totally proven and safe for humans. Mm -hmm. But prototypes themselves that are not occupied by humans, they might be earlier than that. Yeah, I mean, uh, ISS is sooner or later going to come down, I think. So maybe Orb 2 can even be a replacement. I think one of the reasons why it's being kept alive is just because there's nothing else. To switch to yes, waiting for us yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> and also to save, kind of save the taxpayers some money you know with a cheaper version that's the goal yeah, i just want to say imagine, of... imagine proud american government saying that the only space station is chinese that that there is no yeah i don't think they will take it 
No, there's not. Wouldn't be a wouldn't be a great look for anyone. Um, I've got the, the the questions I always ask our guests are um, is do either of you, in fact, take it in turns. Who who inspired you? What is there a sort of superhero that you would bring back from the dead who inspired you to to sort of do this kind of thing? Who's your kind of you know inspiration for this? They don't even have to be dead, but often they are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll kickstart. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, so now at this age, Elon Musk inspires me very much. Um, and the second inspiration I have, which is going to look sound a bit esoterical, it's Buddha. You know, in terms of that trans- transcend, that um, sort of higher um, awareness and, and, and self-knowledge of humanity as one. And that sort of the process of, of life itself. I'm not going to dwell a lot into it, but I, I have the feeling that, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is that the next stage in human evolution will be to have that uh, perception that we are one. Mm. And most people that have gone into space, not few, not many actually yet, have actually managed to sh- make that shift pretty rapidly. So, thank you. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's the first one. time we've had Buddha. Yeah, well, that's that's very, very good. Very good. That's a good one, yeah. I like it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, awesome. uh, my I don't think I have any any person that uh, any person that I feel like they're heroes. Uh, but I again totally offbeat person that I think deserves a lot of credit and he does get. But that's Isaac Newton, who just pretty much invented the whole math and and <laughs> and physics, and there was nothing left for anyone else to do for like next next long time. It's like, oh, <laughs> I have this idea, theory of gravity. It's good that I just invented calculus that that will help me to, to deal with that. Yeah. That was a crazy step forward. One other thing that we are oft, often ask is, um, do you have any space-related songs that you listen to that we can add to our playlist? I know we've I've sprung this on you. I normally give guests a little bit of a chance to think about it. but uh, For me, definitely David Bowie, but that's not a new one, probably. No, yeah, you, I, I, kept, <laughs> I didn't actually mention you're not allowed to choose David Bowie. Oh, damn. <laughs> damn, damn. <laughs> I mean, you can have him if you want, but... You, but <laughs> But obviously, he's already on the playlist several times. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, de- definitely, definitely him. And um, but you know, the interesting thing is that we had um, recently we have a, a collaboration across the planet. Our team members are spread around the world, and we had what would be your space playlist? So we had from Beach House uh, to well, Space Oddity. Yes, we had Omniverse by Graydon. We had Queen, the full collection. So there was a, there was a quite a, quite a few interesting uh, things that I think at some point we should do the the uh, thing Corbett and why not your podcast as well the playlist of for the first orb to up in space. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I just realized if I ever go to space during launch, I definitely going to listen to ACDC. Um, oh yes, <laughs> probably like Thunderstruck yeah, or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know whether ACDC is on, but I definitely I'm with you on that one. Mm-hmm. It'd be very good to have yeah. Highway to Hell. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, just make sure it has a great uh, is it, is, in, inside your sphere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, have. yeah. We're already thinking about the the sounds, Jean Michel Jarre sounds, you know, yeah. floating in space. Yes, must yeah. be amazing. Yeah, Absolutely. so if, if is there is there a any anything that you would like our listeners to sort of do for you, and is there a good place for them to go and find out more about you? 
Yeah, so we, we are on LinkedIn. Uh, so by all means, please connect with Boita and myself or Think, uh, Think Orbital, of course, always Think Orbital, or search Think Orbital on LinkedIn. Uh, we're also um, on Instagram and Twitter, although not that active yet, um, but for sure. And we also have our website, uh, which is thinkorbital.com. Please do reach out to us if you have any questions, if there is anything that caught your attention that you'd like to talk more. And for sure, like Boita said, um, uh, we're looking forward to, you know, once you go through the pre-seed stage, to be able to start onboarding, you know, people who, you know, who are not only smart, who get things done that we would love to spend a lot of time, which we'll probably be spending a lot of time with, but also that share our mission and our passion to be able to commercialize access space as we shared earlier. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I just want to stress, uh, on we have a web page, thinkorbital.com, where in one of the uh, tabs, you can there is a contact and you can redirect it to us. Uh, yes. Fantastic. Well, well, thanks very much for uh, for coming on. I, it, it is an it's an ace. It is really cool project, I have to say, and it's just, it's uh, it'd be really fascinating to see how well it does with the with. The, at NASA, I mean, would that be just absolutely awesome, wouldn't it? Are we bringing the ace in space? Yep, you certainly would be. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Sven. I, I really, I'm really glad you got those guys on. I think that's. A- I think they will need all the help they can get to to make it. You know. I, it's it's a it, you know it's one of those ideas, isn't it, where you can see the merit, and of course there's there's lots and lots of things that could be technological dead ends for them i suppose um or or commercial dead ends or you know practical dead ends but but projects like that's just like i guess everyone laughed at spacex at one point you know it's not too long ago that elon musk was a laughing stock amongst the space community and i don't think that these guys are a laughing stock they've been taken pretty seriously so yeah you know these kind of projects no no real reason to 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 doubt that they could do it no. They could do something. So it yeah, doesn't it's seem, really interesting. I mean, some of the technology is already proven, and it doesn't seem to be a real showstopper. I agree. No. Right. If so, if if we want to go and see the notes that you've uh, helped me put together, Sven. Yeah. Where should people go? Well, it's always a great place to go to <laughs> interplanetary.org.uk. Oh yes, you got it. Uh, but but there's an even better place I think. Can you tell us about it? Oh well, yeah. You could you could go to you could go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary and join Sven and all the other Spodcats on Discord, for example, which is which is definitely where it's all happening. Yeah, it all kicks off, doesn't it? There's a book club on there. There's even a crazy music channel where we've had some ridiculous pictures in quite recently, and an adventuring exploration. Where, yeah, the exploration one where people are off in their very fancy jeeps and stuff and boats. <laughs> yeah, making making me very jealous. Yeah, <laughs> so don't miss it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, th- thanks again, Sven. You yeah. have been an absolute legend. My pleasure. And uh, sorting us out. What are you up to uh, this weekend? This weekend, I've been up to... Uh, I was on Easter's open day, so I've literally just walked out of that to do this. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah so we've got a bunch of interviews with, with the likes of Elsa Montagna, who does, who is the, I believe, the mission manager for Bepi Colombo now. Uh, we had Kate Underhill again. Great. The, the future space launch person mm-hmm. really really cool uh the director of s tech as well 
Well, who we've had on very, very early on, but very much shorter interview. So we've got some really, really good and I look forward to it. interviews. Yeah, it's really good. I it's love really Pepe Colombo. It just oh, went by yeah. Mercury for the first time. Well, yeah, well, this was a good. That that was the great thing. Yeah. We had we had Elsa the day after that. Its first Mercury flyby. Awesome. Yeah. So how many more to go until it arrives? It's, it's quite a lot. I think it's got another five planetary maneuvers before it can get into orbit around Mercury. That's how difficult it is to get yeah. to get there. <laughs> Takes a lot of slowing like, down. Yeah, I, whoever did the orbital mechanics for Bepi Colombo deserves some form of medal, whatever the team were. Yeah, especially that, because they, they, did, they did them so many times, you know, because it was delayed and delayed, so they had to do them yep. all over again ser oh. several times. <laughs> yeah, because the, the planets keep moving, apparently. It's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> do it once, it's a different scenario. Well, Sven, what are you up to? Uh, not much. I just started a new job and... Uh, yeah, so I starting a new job's not much. Is not not much. <laughs> no, no, but but that's why I didn't do much on the weekend. So ah, right. Yeah. So you're just relaxing. Yeah, pretty much. Good, good, good man. Okay. Well, say hello to Germany for me, yeah. and uh, and thanks uh, for having yeah. me. That's another another cross channel episode of the Interplanetary Podcast. Bye bye, podcast. Bye bye. bye, -bye.